Good evening. My name is Shirley Tillman, and I am the president of Princeton University. I want to welcome all of you to this commemorative assembly on this historic green, where many of us gathered last fall, just a few days after the tragic events of September the 11th. I want to say a special word of welcome to new members of the university community and to members of the surrounding communities who have come to join with us to reflect on the attacks a year ago on thousands of innocent individuals, on our nation, and on some of the most fundamental values of our global society. We are gathered today to remember, to reflect, and to reaffirm our individual and collective commitments to response and to renewal. We come together as a community so we can share with each other the grief and the anger that we still feel, so we can take comfort from one another, and so we can strengthen our resolve to bring those responsible to justice. We are also here to recognize our common humanity with peoples of all cultures and nationalities and to renew our understanding of our collective responsibility for each other's well-being. At times like this, words and music are important and bring comfort. But moments of silence allow each of us to reflect in our own individual way on these horrific events and our responses to them. Before we proceed with the rest of the program, please join me in a moment of silence. Thank you. One of our purposes today is to keep alive the memory of those who died in the World Trade Center, those who died in the planes that crashed into the towers and the Pentagon, those who died in the plane that was so courageously diverted into a Pennsylvania field, and the hundreds of police firefighters, and rescue workers who gave their lives so heroically, providing help to others. We, of course, have a special place in our hearts for the 13 Princetonians among them, and we are proceeding with plans to create a memorial garden in their honor just behind this green in the space facing Nassau Hall that lies between East Pine and Chancellor Green. Those buildings will become a new humanities center, and we hope to have the renovations and the garden completed by this time next year. As many of you know, Princeton's response to the attacks last fall took many forms. Literally, within hours, some members of our faculty were in New York assessing the damage to buildings adjacent to the World Trade Center, while others were meeting with students or preparing programs that provided opportunities for inquiry and understanding. Students, staff members, and alumni immediately began reaching out to those in need of help, joined in the relief efforts, and developed both individual and collective responses to a broad range of intellectual, emotional, and spiritual needs. As an institution, we developed four programs. 
One, Arts Alive, allowed several hundred Princeton students to provide workshops and accompany more than 10,000 school children from communities most directly affected by the attacks on September the 11th to live arts and cultural experiences in New York City. Another created a scholarship program and a Princeton alumni mentoring program for students at John Jay College for criminal justice in Manhattan, a school that lost more than 100 of its alumni, police officers, firefighters, rescue workers, on September the 11th. A third has provided support for research by our faculty and our students into issues related to the events of September the 11th. And the fourth will take place in the next two days when families directly affected by the September 11 attacks will participate in a program designed especially for them at the Princeton Blairstown Center in northern New Jersey. At the core of each of these programs is personal engagement and a desire both to assist those directly affected by the attacks and to contribute to renewal and recovery. Each of these programs is in some way still ongoing and each seeks an impact that will extend well into the future. There are other programs, conferences, and courses being offered this fall that have similar goals. And I encourage each of you to find your own way to contribute your particular talents and energies. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, a Princeton honorary degree recipient, in his address at Gettysburg, it is for us the living to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, to resolve that those who died shall not have died in vain, and that all peoples of this earth shall have a new birth of freedom in governments of the people, by the people, and for the people. Let me now ask the Reverend Deborah Blanks, Associate Dean of Religious Life and of the Princeton University Chapel, and Rabbi Dov Peretz Elkins, President of the Princeton Clergy Association, to pronounce the invocations. I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer. Let us pray. Merciful and mighty God, we come into your presence 365 days after the tragic events of September 11th, still not fully able to believe what our eyes saw, what our ears heard, what our hearts felt, and what our minds were made to conceive. On this day, we remember the precious and noble lives of those who died at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and on Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Grief and mourning have been our company keepers. Tears and the weeping that endures through the night have been our reality. Anxiety and fear have invaded the rhythm of our days. But you, O oh God, have been the life-giving source of strength and courage and hope. We have seen the power of your handiwork displayed across the tapestry of our lives. It has been revealed in the eyes of children who are our future. It has been renewed in the voices of the elders whose wisdom has encouraged us. It has been shared in the embraces of people we have known and not known at all. It has been felt in our hearts as we have found strength in community. We are here, O oh God, 365 days later as living lights standing against the darkness of evil 
and the tyranny of terrorism. We pray that the light of hope birthed in us will illumine our paths and the ever-present help beyond the hills will be a constant source of solace. We pray that you will give a song in the night when the dawn seems distant and far. We grieve today, but we grasp for tomorrow, and we know that you hold tomorrow in your hands, even as you hold us and we hold one another. We invoke and invite your presence with us. Amen. It is customary during the Jewish High Holy Day period to read the 27th Psalm. This Psalm also seems so appropriate for this commemorative assembly. The Lord is my light and my help, whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, whom should I dread? When evil men assail me to devour my flesh, it is they, my foes and my enemies, who stumble and fall. Should an army besiege me, my heart would have no fear. Should war beset me, still would I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, only that do I seek, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to frequent God's temple. God will shelter me in his pavilion on an evil day. Grant me the protection of his tent. Raise me high upon a rock. Now is my head high over my enemies round about. I sacrifice in God's tent with shouts of joy, singing and chanting a hymn to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, have mercy on me, answer me. In your behalf, my heart says, seek my face. O Lord, I seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not thrust aside your servant in anger. You have been my help. Do not forsake me. Do not abandon me, O God, my deliverer. Though my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me in. Show me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my foes. Do not subject me to the will of my foes, for false witnesses and unjust accusers have appeared against me. Had I not the assurance that I would enjoy the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Look to the Lord, be strong and of good courage. Look to the Lord. We will now have two readings, one by Nina Langsam, a member of the senior class of 2003 and president of the undergraduate student government, and one by Scott Miller, a graduate student in the Department of Chemical Engineering and president of the graduate student government. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust, there may yet be hope, to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone.
from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. On the beach at night, alone, as the old mother sways her to and fro, singing her husky song, as I watch the bright stars shining, I think a thought of the cleft of the universe and the future. A vast similitude interlocks all, all spheres grown, ungrown, small, large, suns, moons, planets, all distances of place, however wide, all distances of time, all inanimate forms, all souls, all living bodies, though they be ever so different or of different worlds, all gaseous, watery, vegetable, mineral processes, the fishes, the brutes, all nations, colors, barbarisms, civilizations, languages, all identities that have existed or may exist on this globe or any globe, all lives and deaths, all of the past, present, and future. This vast similitude spans them all and always has spanned and shall forever span them and compactly hold them and enclose them. For reflections, I would now like to call first upon Guy Nordensen, an associate professor in our School of Architecture, who played a central role in assessing damage at the Ground Zero site within hours of the attacks on the World Trade Center, and who has continued to be closely involved in the rebuilding and renewal effort. And then Maureen Monagle of the class of 2004, who helped initiate and then co-chaired the Arts Alive program. Following their remarks, we will hear from the University Choir, Glee Club, and other singing groups under the direction of Penna Rose. Good evening, and thank you, President Tillman, for inviting me to speak tonight. A year ago, I watched, as we all did, the horror of 9-11. As a structural engineer, I was amazed both that the towers resisted the plane's impact and fire for so long, and that in the end they collapsed so completely. I was struck at how difficult it was for my mind to comprehend what was happening and how long it took me to realize that the towers would collapse. Reality can and will overwhelm even the expert. That afternoon, I was able to contact some of my colleagues with whom I had years back started an organization of structural engineers. I wanted to see if we could do something to help. By the 12th, some of them were able to get onto the site and contact city authorities. By Friday, we had mobilized about 100 engineers to help on a 24-7 basis. We had teams of three to four volunteer engineers from around the city and beyond working in the four sectors of the site, advising on safety, demolition, or whatever else that was needed. I first got to the site on Friday the 14th. I was held up for a while, and the site work was suspended when President Bush came to visit that afternoon. By the time I got on site, it was dark. I had an idea. Even then, things were rather chaotic. The mayor's Office of Emergency Management was doing a heroic job of co coordination, but they had lost their command center and were working out of a school cafeteria, and most of them had gone without sleep for 72 hours. I realized that no one had a very uh, clear idea for how to systematically inspect the damage to the surrounding buildings and that I might be able to help. I was, it was simply a matter of putting a number of things together, techniques that had worked successfully in California after earthquakes, some work that we had done here at Princeton on uh, building inventory for Manhattan, and mobilizing the engineers from Sioni. I spent the night finding people and convincing them to send the idea up the chain of command. It took only 24 hours for it to be approved, and we went to work mobilizing that weekend with a lot of help from Princeton students so that teams of four to five engineers could go out and do the preliminary inspections of about 400 buildings that following Monday and Tuesday. 
By the Friday after the 21st, we had completed and sent back up to the chain of command, up, back up the chain of command, our listing of buildings and their degree of damage. There were about 400 engineers um, from not only New York, but Chicago and Boston that were involved in this. Since it turned out 90% of the buildings were undamaged, this facilitated the city's relaxation of access restrictions, allowing people to go home. In the following months, I continued working along with my colleagues on the site. We rotated shifts every three days, eight in the morning or eight in the evening, for 12 hours, alternating days and night until January. In November, I took a break and went ahead with a trek I had planned uh, for Nepal. I was on sabbatical that fall. I took along Tolstoy's War and Peace. It helped me make some sense of what I had experienced of my feelings and thoughts. I had witnessed the aftermath of a battle and all, with all the fog and confusion of war. The attacks had destroyed the order of things at the site, and we were all there at the front lines of reconstruction, both of the reality and of the history. Out of all this chaos, the many stories that were to make its history were swirling. Quoting Tolstoy, as soon as an event does take place, whatever it may be, out of the number of all experiences of the will of different persons, there are always there are always some which, from their meaning and time of utterance, are related to the events as commands. What I saw was this process at its inception. Events I witnessed were in time gathered and interpreted into a narrative structure. The structure of interpretation would more or less reflect the facts that I had seen take place. Things got done because someone took it on themselves to make it so. Decisions got made often on a very limited factual basis. There was no time based on often intense but usually respectful argument among the workers, firemen, policemen, and engineers on hand. It was case after case of what Professor Josh Ober of Princeton has referred to as promiscuous democracy. It was for me intensely moving to watch it take place, to see how democracy could take hold from the ground up, literally, among people united simply by commitment to keep everyone safe and to recover the remains of the dead. In my practice, I work to build things and ideas. The work is always collaborative because that's how things get built. But there are always a need for ideas to guide it, to stars to set the course. The poet William Carlos Williams wrote, no ideas but in things. And it is true, I think, that close attention to reality is necessary for ideas to emerge. On site, we argued to conclusions through the study of what was there, but also we needed ideas to organize things. Ideas and things are intermingled in time and space. That is what makes it all so difficult and challenging. It was, after all, the extreme and insane idealism of Muhammad Atta and his accomplices that destroyed the towers. And today we continue to suffer from the excesses of ideology. Clear observation, clear thinking, and forceful deliberation is, I believe, our best defense and best way forward. There's been a lot of talk about war and not very much about peace. Our world is suffering, the environmental destructions wrought by greed, the incessant global wars, absurd poverty, and unnecessary disease and death. Tonight, at the close of a day of reflection and sadness for our dead and hurt, I hope we can all turn to the most difficult site of what happened last year, our planet, and give it the clarity of focus, the commitment to democratic and deliberative discourse and decision-making, and the careful balance of idealism and realism that it desperately demands. Thank you. There is no strength without unity, reads an Irish proverb. On September 11, 2001, we at Princeton stood united. As some of us struggled to locate loved ones in New York, others gave blood, worked at Red Cross stations, and ventured into the city to help in the rescue efforts. But in the aftermath of tragedy, many sought to make a deeper and more lasting impact. In June, a group of Princeton students attended a performance of The Lion King on Broadway with Arts Alive. Princeton's guests that night included 100 people who had lost parents and spouses on September 11th. Sitting behind us during the performance were a mother and her three red-haired, freckle-faced children. All wore the fire badge of their father, a New York City firefighter who valiantly answered the call to duty on September 11th and never returned. 
It was Gaynan's birthday, the first without her father, and she was thrilled to be seeing her first Broadway play. We often underestimate the impact that live arts can have upon people. That June night, as we watched a story about the loss of a father and the grief, guilt, and ultimate understanding of a son, the impact of the play upon these children was clear. The lyrics of Endless Night, a song in The Lion King, are as follows. I'm trying to hold on, just waiting to hear your voice. One word, just a word will do to end this nightmare. I know that the night must end and that the sun will rise. I know that the clouds must clear and that the sun will shine. After seeing the performance, one mother wrote, My daughter lost her husband, a New York City firefighter, on September 11th. There are very few things that she has looked forward to since that day, but she was so excited about receiving tickets to The Lion King. If your organization's intentions are to bring joy and awareness of good things in a sometimes cruel world through the magic of stage and all its counterparts, then you have achieved your goal. In the last year, Arts Alive has enabled more than 10,000 children affected by September 11th to attend live arts events. But the impact of Arts Alive was far greater. Children learned about astronomy from Princeton astrophysics graduate students at the Rose Planetarium. Third graders in Queens learned about the literary concept of anthropomorphism before going to see Beauty and the Beast. And middle school students in the Bronx learned about Shakespeare from Princeton students dressed in 17th century costumes. Seventh graders broke stereotypes when every member of a class sang his or her name operatically. And one class that had gone to see Aida even learned the hieroglyphic characters to spell out, I love New York. There is no question that Princeton students enhanced the live arts experiences of the children. And, in turn, the children instilled confidence and hope in Princeton students. Weeks earlier, the same children had watched bodies being carried through the streets from the windows of their classrooms. They had endured months in makeshift schoolhouses, and they had lost parents and loved ones. The strength and resilience of New York City and of America were seen in the smiles of the children as they danced to Be Our Guest and reenacted fairy tales. A question that we heard repeatedly was, where is Princeton? Michael Ritter, a member of the class of 2003, wrote an editorial in the Daily Princetonian last year that raised this question. I pose it to you again today. Where is Princeton? It is certainly in classrooms and lecture halls, in performance spaces, and on athletic fields. But in the aftermath of September 11th, Princeton extended far beyond Fitzrandolph Gates. Princeton was in the classrooms of New York City. Princeton was in the suffering cultural venues of New York. Princeton gave thousands of students their first exposure to live arts and enabled them to dream. If only for a few hours, Princeton relieved children affected by September 11th from some of their suffering. Where is Princeton? Princeton is and will always be in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. Thank you.
I would now like to invite reflections, first by Carol Emerson, the A. Watson Armour III University Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures, and then by Alexander Nehamas, the Edmund N. Carpenter II Class of 1943 Professor in the Humanities and Professor of Philosophy and Comparative Literature. Wherever we turn, it seems to say anything more is already too much. For commemoration is itself an ethical act, along with rites of mourning, and there are few ways to do it that are adequate to the shock and the loss. It is not that we risk to forget the awful footage of that day from every conceivable angle under a brilliant blue sky has long been part of everyone's inner landscape. But response has been hard. Thoughtful Americans of goodwill and sound mind continue to disagree radically on the lessons to be learned. Can one pay proper tribute without taking sides? To best survive and rebuild, should we reconfirm ourselves or alter ourselves? Or what would seem to be the minimum program, make an unprecedented effort to see ourselves as other nations might see us, both an irresistible beacon and an unstoppable empire. There are also questions closer to home. How should local communities such as ours commemorate one ethical position recommends that memory, like any other form of behavior, should strive to be maximally concrete and particular. In other words, do in your place what only you can do from that place, and then you will have done your part honestly. Last November, Princeton held a roundtable on terrorism and war, the arts and the humanities, because those issues are what we value and do from our place. There is a sense in which only we here can appreciate those dozens of commuter cars that remained unclaimed in the Princeton Junction parking lot on 9-11 and then on 9-12. Last year at this time, I was with my parents in southern Colorado and managed by some miracle to get a ticket on the first flight to land at Newark Airport after the reopening of national airspace the Friday after. Everyone was absolutely silent. The sky seemed to be full of ash for miles, but it wasn't until training into the junction and thinking about those unclaimed cars that the unspeakable horror of it became human and I was able to cry. Those people weren't going into battle. They were going into work. This intensely person-by-person -person response to the sacrifices of that day has been a trait of the commemorations throughout this past year. From the huge, disorderly mass of messages being left on the shifting monument to Flight 93 near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to the biographies, face photos, and follow-ups on families in the New York Times, to Rudolf Giuliani's launching this morning at Ground Zero, an alphabetical reading of all those thousands of names. To remember and learn from the pain of an event of this magnitude, are we best equipped to think large or think small? Are we best equipped to work from the top down, asking large questions of national responsibility, or from the bottom up, accretively, body by body. In reflecting on these issues, I turned over the summer to that part of the world I've long watched and studied, Russia and Central Europe. Friends there and emigrants from those lands now living over here were deeply sympathetic. I feel sorry for America, one friend told me. She's not prepared. America doesn't know how to do this. Doing this meant a lot of things that had long been familiar to Eastern Europe, 
not only losing thousands of lives overnight, a horror known to all nations at war, but also being willing to monitor, restrict, screen, and harass your own citizens, all those time-consuming and obstructing rituals that had absorbed so much of the GNP of communist countries. And specifically, doing this meant to endure terrorism in times of peace. Russia was the home of the first letter bomb as well as the first large-scale use of explosives against a civilian population. At least, my friend added, you have the names. You can read out the names. In a way both palpable and strange, America has become more loved as she has become more resented, joining the family of nations, having our sky fall in too. It happened here. The reality of 9-11 brought America closer to the small, powerless, ravished peoples of Eastern Europe where in the living memory of some villages there is nothing but battlefields and every other generation was lost to violence. And closer as well to that ex-superpower, the imploded former Soviet Union, humiliated beyond all accounting. The big question everyone asks now is, the powerless have few choices, but can a powerful nation, the most powerful nation, be both firm and wise? Eastern Europeans tend to be very attentive to anniversaries or jubilees, and among the well-meaning advice I have heard is, show, don't tell. That seemed awful. We have replayed it so often, it's a narrative that already risks becoming a movie, a very terrible but still an enthralling movie, and there could only be debasement in that. But in fact, something else was meant. Showing, it turned out, was stopping the story. Or rather, it was paying tribute to those moments that cannot really be imagined in time, cannot be commemorated in the sense of held in the mind. They can only be glimpsed with horror. One such moment surely occurred when those inside realized that there was no time left, no space left, and they jumped. Another such moment is still happening every minute among the surviving grieving families and loved ones, uncommemoratable because there is too much time, there is nothing but time, as the big public event breaks up into a million private rages and miseries, the reality of living with an absence for the rest of your life. How do we honor those timeless split instants and endless aftermaths? Perhaps this is one purpose of a commemorative assembly, to ask forgiveness for our helplessness in addressing this category of experience. In a just-published Princeton University Press book entitled Evil in Modern Thought, Susan Naiman discusses the immediate impact of 9-11 in terms of the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. That monumental symbol of natural terror traumatized the 18th century. A city at work on an ordinary day, seized at random, no warning, no message, collapsed in rubble, then flame, then tidal wave. Where 9-11 was so different, she writes, is that it was awesomely intentional. In response to intentional acts, we are obliged to do more than grieve, as the book of Job makes eloquently clear. As a nation and as individuals, may we grow into this task. More than 3,000 people died disastrously a year ago today. We are here to commemorate their deaths. Why? Innocents have been killed before, often in far greater numbers, 
sometimes in much ghastlier ways. Why these people and not the others? Why September 11, already pried loose from any particular year, as if its significance went far beyond the specific events that first fixed it in our minds? We had long known that the United States was the target and had already been the victim of terrorism. What country today is not? The World Trade Center had already been bombed once. We had been warned that more terrorist acts on United States soil were almost inevitable. And yet, the catastrophe of a year ago was totally unexpected. Unexpected in the sense that its form, its means, its suddenness, its devastating destruction success defied both reason and imagination. Almost like an earthquake which robs the earth of its substance and often makes worse trouble of our mental than our physical structures. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears. Men wonder what it did and meant, wrote John Donne. It showed there is no end to the ways disaster can strike and human beings can harm one another. September 11, 2001, a particular day, a particular event, is becoming September 11 because on that day, one more barrier between fact and fantasy, history and imagination, broke down. Moreover, unlike all other unexpected catastrophes, it occurred in plain view for all the world to see. Erupting into the actual world out of a scene that could have been staged in a Hollywood studio, the airplanes that smashed our buildings also demolished a border between reality and imagination, and along with it, our sense of the strict separation between them. And they forced on us the realization that the borders between reality and imagination are always shattered in different places, places of which we cannot even conceive until they give way beneath us. Unexpected catastrophes, we must face it, will never cease. And September 11 shows they will always come in previously unimaginable forms. Each one of them, like September 11, 2001, the particular disaster, will reveal and produce new ways of harming people and new reasons for hating them. But these, and efforts to devise new ways of preventing the harms and new reasons for eliminating the hate, have been among the main engines of human history, from the cracked skulls of early hominids murdered in South Africa to yesterday's news, and there they will remain as long as there will be yesterday's. September 11, 2001, that particular day, did not cleave time or history in two. It is, appallingly, one of innumerable horrors, past and future, each of which demands to be addressed in its own specific terms. But if we manage to see and react to that particular horror as a part of history, then September 11 may have a lasting effect. It can stand for all unexpected catastrophes as a reminder that our certainties are transient, our power is limited, our ability to control our fate restricted. That is neither defeatism nor relativism. It is a proper sense of our finitude bought at the price of the 3,000 deaths that blackened that day, the sense of Seamus Heaney's poem on September 11, a free adaptation of an ancient Roman poem on just the theme of unexpected catastrophes. He called it Horus and the Thunder. 
and goes like this. Anything can happen. You know how Jupiter will mostly wait for clouds to gather head before he hurls the lightning? Well, just now he galloped his thundercart and his horses across a clear blue sky. It shook the earth and the clogged underneath, the river sticks, the winding streams, the Atlantic shore itself. Anything can happen. The tallest things be overturned, those in high places daunted, those overlooked esteemed. Hooked weak fortune swoops, making the air gasp, tearing off crests for sport, letting them drop, whatever. Ground gives. The heaven's weight lifts up off Atlas like a kettle lid. Capstone shift. Nothing resettles right. Telluric ash and fire spores darken day. Anything can happen. No one, no matter how powerful, is exempt from error, danger, destruction. We must calm the shrill voices claiming moral clarity complete knowledge, invincible superiority. On the contrary, moral and intellectual humility, a suspicion of the sense of infallibility, a willingness to retreat when necessary in order to go forward in the face of irresoluble uncertainty when possible, are not weaknesses, but strengths, not only of nations, but of individuals. It is worth recalling that there are also among the principles, among the founding principles of this country, which by no means alone in the world today or any other day in history is mourning its innocent dead. Thank you.
I want to conclude this assembly by thanking all of the speakers, all who have provided this wonderful music, and all of you for being here. It is now my pleasure to introduce Kenny Grayson, the foreman of the electrical shop, who will lead us all in the singing of Amazing Grace. You will find the words in your program. He will be followed by the Reverend Thomas Bridenthal, Dean of Religious Life in the Chapel, who will pronounce the benediction, and then we will have a final moment of reflection as we listen to bagpiper Whitney Kalmbach of the class of 2005. Again, thank you for coming, and may peace be with you. Please stand. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. My heart teaches me night after night. I have set the Lord always before me. Because God is at my right hand, I shall not fall. My heart, therefore, is glad, and my spirit rejoices. My body also shall rest in hope. Let us pray.
Blessed are you, O God, creator of the changes of day and night, giving rest to the weary, renewing the strength of those who are spent, bestowing upon us occasions of song in the evening. As you have protected us in the day that is past, so be with us in the coming night. Keep us from every sin, every evil, and every fear. For you are our light and our salvation and the strength of our life. To you be glory for endless ages. Amen. Amen.